0: Thank you. Again, my name is Alina Jenkins, and this is the KI Prime Podcast. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Shifra Ginsberg. Dr. Ginsberg is a professor of medicine at the Temerty Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, a staff physician at Mount Sinai Hospital, and a scientist at the Wilson Centre for Research in Education. She is also the Canada Research Chair in Health Professions Education. When I spoke to her in September 2020, she told me more about her area of research.
1: Yeah, so I've been actually doing research for a really long time, and I started out studying the um, concept of professionalism in medical education, and how we as faculty were really assessing and making judgments about our learners' professionalism. And I did that for many years, and we, we really um, got to a place of understanding that What was probably happening a lot is that we were making judgments about how other people act based on a lot of assumptions that may or may not be correct. And I got so interested in the very complex kind of construct of professionalism and also the decision making and assessment that I realized that it applied to all other areas of assessment. We think we're being super objective and that we can see behaviours and know exactly what they are. But when you actually unpack it a bit and get people to talk about or write about how they're making decisions about other people's actions and behaviours, it's really messy and super interesting.
0: When you talk about professionalism, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, that is a little bit more of my older research programme that I, at the time, was concerned that we really weren't defining professionalism and that we were looking at things like attitudes and character and personality traits. And my colleagues and I really felt that looking at behaviors would be that sort of more, quote unquote, objective, and it would be more reliable just to not kind of worry about what's going on underneath, but look at what people are actually doing. So how do people behave in a professional interaction? Uh, Are they being rude, angry, abrupt? Are they treating patients respectfully, other healthcare providers respectfully, um, showing accountability and responsibility for their actions? So it it was kind of an action type of a framework for professionalism rather than a moral framework or ethical framework. So we really wanted to get at those behaviors and actions. And we studied that in medical students, in academic faculty, and practicing physicians. And we really found very similar patterns of responses that people decide what to do when there's a very challenging situation that challenges their professionalism. They decide what to do based on a lot of, well, it depends. It depends on the situation and the context and how well I know the person and have I done this before and what's my background and do I like this person or not? And what could happen to me if I did this and something went wrong? So there really just it was no simple way to make a framework or a list of rules that could be adhered to in every situation. And that was across all these different groups we studied.
0: I suppose that's the challenge. How do you assess it and how do you make it objective versus subjective?
1: Well, that's exactly it. And I think I was fairly naive at the time as a beginning faculty member and as a beginning researcher. And that illusion of objectivity really did not pan out. And I think I had grown up in this paradigm of everything being objective and measurable in this whole sort of positivistic world and realizing that we were ignoring this um, huge rich part of the way we navigate the world and make decisions, which is purely subjective based on input that is objective, like you observe a behavior or you observe a car coming to crash through you and you jump out of the way, that kind of thing. But it's subjective. And we Really devalue um, anything subjective in medical education. Until recently, I think people have really started realizing that we were throwing away a lot of really useful information and we were almost pretending that it didn't matter and that we could objectify everything and we really just couldn't. And so now I think there's more understanding that we need to incorporate the subjective opinions, but not. To the point where everything is purely subjective and everyone can have their own opinion there's still some some pretty clear boundaries around some of what's acceptable behavior or not there's some extremes that everyone would agree on but that fits in with the new paradigm of assessment which is rather than having these high stakes one-time only exams that you have to pass or you don't get to practice we're doing a lot of low stakes assessments lots and lots of observations in different settings by different people in different contexts, and then taking those and sort of amalgamating them and coming up with a picture of a person's competence.
0: How is your research already being implemented in medical education?
1: So the research on professionalism, I think it had a a pretty good impact. It really helped inform policies here at the University of Toronto And, you know, I have participated in national organizations on professionalism, like the Medical Council of Canada, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and with large groups in the United States, like the American Board of Internal Medicine and the National Board of Medical Examiners. So they all um, seem to, you know, appreciate the research that we had done here and looking for ways to incorporate that kind of decision making into exams and curriculums. The research that I've been doing now, which is kind of taking a bit of a broader view of that subjectivity and the language that we use to describe other people's performance um, is also starting to have an influence in terms of policies around documenting assessments, documenting feedback. How do we use all this narrative commentary? It's a lot easier to put a bunch of numbers in a computer and get like an average score. You can't really do that with words. So that's the kind of work that I'm engaged with now.
0: You mentioned feedback there. And a few episodes ago, I was speaking with Liz Malloy about her research in this area. And we spoke about how this ties in with communication. I know you've written some papers on feedback. So how does this amalgamate with professionalism?
1: Yeah, so what we found was what people document in the written assessments. So we have these kinds of assessment forms that they they all look a little bit different, but they're all essentially the same. There's a bunch of numerical scales. There's some kind of global on a scale of one to five. And then there's some comment boxes. And really, one of the things that drove me at the beginning was the fact that we, the comment boxes didn't count for anything. It was only the score. So you could get a score that passes you, but you read the comments and you're like, "Mm, there's a lot of red flags in here. And um, so I got really interested in, first of all, what was in the comment boxes. So a lot of it is about knowledge and skills and the things that you would expect. Um, But there's a lot of other stuff in the written comments that are not anything that you would see on those numeric scales, like attitude, personality, general disposition. Uh, We write a lot about how we feel Like, I loved working with this person. This person made my life easy this month. So those are not things you can reduce to scales. So it became about more than professionalism. And then in addition to what people wrote, I got really interested in how we write, Even, even simple things like what is the order that you put things down in and what can that say about what you're thinking? So even when you're giving very critical or almost negative assessments and feedback, we almost always start with something positive right they're really really good at book learning but blah 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 and so it's just very interesting and it's we found some very consistent patterns in that
0: communication is a common thread which runs through many of the ko prime fellows research of course when you're training to become a healthcare professional there's a lot of focus on technical skills and diagnostic skills you need those to become a medic Do you think this focus on communication and feedback is becoming just as important as the technical and diagnostic skills?
1: Absolutely. Those are the things that get physicians into trouble uh, more often than anything else. And there was even a recent report from our own College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, which is one of the large regulatory colleges, uh, that still communication is kind of the number one thing, that even if there is a Deficit in um, you know surgical skill or something. It's 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 almost always there's a communication thing that goes along there. That's the trigger, and so I think we still have a long ways to go. I think we're still. um, I hate to say this on a public podcast, but there are still people that graduate that really um, could either use more time coaching about their communication skills, or perhaps a realization somewhere along the way that they are not extremely well suited for a complex area like medicine, where communication and patience and empathy and compassion are so important. So I think that's the other thing that keeps driving me in this work is that despite having done this for like, I hate to say 20 years already, (laughs) we we still haven't got there.
0: I wonder if there's this expectation that when people leave university and go into the next stage of their medical career, that they're already armed with these communication skills. And perhaps that's the wrong expectation. And these softer skills are not automatically there. They have to be taught too.
1: So that that's such a great point. And we ended up writing a, a book that was largely based on that idea. So communication kind of you know not really part it's part of professionalism i mean you can draw your artificial boundaries wherever you want but this idea that in the old days it used to be either completely ignored and not taught like you're, you, you either have it or you don't or it was assessed that way professional or not and we really worked hard to reframe professionalism as a competency that you would learn just like anything else you don't expect You know, a 20-year-old kid who's probably, you know, maybe never had much life experience to be able to know how to navigate uh, communicating with other healthcare professionals or with critically ill patients, of course not. We would expect that they'd start here and we would teach them and coach them and assess them until they were up here where we want them to be. So I think treating these things as a competency that can be taught and learned also helps to take hopefully take a bit of the stigma away of not that you're bad at this, but, oh, you haven't learned this yet or you need more time to practice this skill. So teaching them as skills rather than as absolutes or character traits, I think is helpful.
0: I really like you make that point that as teachers we want to teach, but it's equally important to understand how students learn too.
1: That's one of the things that is Potentially promising about this new era of medical education is that, as I mentioned, with multiple low stakes assessments, m- much more direct observation and feedback to coach people up to specific levels that are expected to you know in whatever medical field you're in so rather than just saying yeah you got you know 60 percent and that's a pass on your test what are the actual things we want future physicians to be able to do and the system is now supposed to be flexible enough that there's um uh if some people need more time and more observation and more feedback and more coaching then that's kind of built in some people will move through a little bit quicker and can get on to the next stage And with more observation and feedback, hopefully we won't be graduating people after four years and crossing our fingers that they, you know, learn the rest of it when they go out and practice.
0: So I've been speaking with Ming and Tarusha about their research around professionalism across different cultures. Have you looked at this angle as well?
1: Yeah, in fact, it was an introduction to Ming Ho that actually took me in that direction. And we worked on a few studies together together. Um, maybe around somewhere like five or 10 years ago. One of the big issues was that we still were a lot of medical school curricula um, we think of as being, well, it's the facts and the facts should be the same everywhere. And you can take a curriculum and plop it down somewhere else and it's going to work just as well. But for things like professionalism and communication body language, all these things that can be so different in different cultures that we cannot have an absolute standard that we say, well, this is going to work everywhere. So I worked with an international group probably about 10 years ago, and we came together at a big international conference, and we wrote a paper. Ryan Hodges was the lead author, and it was really about the different lenses that we sort of approach professionalism with. And and we, we spend most of our time at that individual level rather than, let's say, a interprofessional level or a systems and organizational level, which drives a lot of behavior. And what came through from that is a lot of interesting collaborations came out of that. And in follow up, we found that there were a lot more at least research studies and articles coming up from different parts of the world that had not been writing as much about professionalism. And the other thing we realized is that what we consider as, you know, the good of government and society, not everywhere can have full trust in their organizations and institutions. And there's also a fascinating pushback on professionalism right now from groups in medicine that have been underrepresented and the racialized groups that see professionalism as a form of policing their behavior, the way they dress, their hair, the way they handle themselves, their communication styles. They see the institution as trying to make everyone be kind of little widgets and behave in the same way. And that goes against a desire for self-expression and authentic, bringing your authentic self into medicine. And that is something that's quite new for professionalism. And I don't think we've at all grappled with that yet.
0: What would be your initial response to those challenges?
1: That is a really tough question. Again, I think I've been, over the years, first of all, super impressed with the basic goodness and professionalism of all of our trainees. I am constantly just blown away by their altruism and dedication and commitment. So sometimes it feels like they have this us versus them and we're the old fogies and we don't understand or that we're judging them for, for being young. Um, I, I'm just blown away by how awesome they all are. So I think we need to learn from them um, and have them sort of lead us into a more modern time when more than one way of being is acceptable.
0: I just wanted to move away from your research for a moment to talk about a paper you wrote about barriers to publication, which we've spoken about before in this podcast series. So I just wondered what advice you might give to people listening about how you begin to overcome those barriers. So I'm
1: just I'm laughing because I also have challenges getting published. I am a deputy editor at Medical Education, which is one of the leading journals. I'm on the editorial board of academic medicine, and I can tell everyone I regularly get things rejected from both of my journals. So um, and with some very uh, close and trusted colleagues the other day, some of us were sharing some of our most scathing reviews that we had received personally this year. You know, so, so fairly prominent researchers in medical education. So I think... Uh, we have a long way to go in terms of polite and constructive peer review. I think the advice I usually give people is it, it happens to everybody. There's no stage of a career or stature that anyone has that they're immune from getting things rejected. It's just part of being a researcher and a writer in academics. And it's just you you learn strategies of how to, you know, get over those initial stings and and picking things up and moving on. And that's something that I keep having to remind myself of because it does still keep happening to me. So you need you need a bit of a thick skin. You need to persist. And then some of us that are working within the journals, again, trying to change things from the inside. So. When we see particularly egregious reviews, we may counsel the reviewer or remove them from the reviewer database or send something like an apology or explanation to the authors. We don't, we're trying to sort of clean up the field a little bit.
0: So the final question, Shifra, is where do you think your research might take you next?
1: Oh, yeah. So I think um, everything has been derailed because of the pandemic. So we had started some studies that we then had to put on hold. So I'm just, as I mentioned at the beginning, slowly getting my head back into gear about what's next. I do have some very interesting studies going on uh, with colleagues here and at University of uh, British Columbia and Western and Ottawa about things like how we have this um, tendency to blur feedback and assessment. And what does that look like and how does it, basically impede both from being as good as they could be. I'm working uh, with some trainees as well on several studies now looking at gender and how perceptions of assessment and feedback can be very gender based. We found that women uh, in our residency program, for example, really feel that they get different, much more gendered feedback than men um, we studied men as well. We're also looking at gender differences in our teacher evaluations, both, both in the scores and also in what, what the learners are writing about the teachers in the comments. And, and looking at things, again, like I'm, I'm always drawn to this idea of how we make decisions about other people. And so the idea of, of now requiring our trainees to constantly ask us for feedback, how are we assessing those feedback-seeking moments? How do we know if someone's genuinely asking for feedback because they want to improve? Or do we kind of think they're doing it just so we can write, yes, they asked for feedback? And how does that affect the communication? So again, it's about that subjective judgment that can sort of apply widely.
0: Dr. Shifra Ginsberg. And this interview marks the end of my conversations with the 2019 KI Prime Fellows. For the final episodes of this podcast series, we'll hear from early winners of the prize, starting with Dr. Case van der Leyten and his research in evaluation and assessment of medical competences. Until then, goodbye.